Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Stripe Tap to Pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Welcome to a Daily Tech News Show special edition. Uh, today, we are going to interview Yael Eisenstadt, policy advisor at the Center for Humane Technology, as well as a fellow at Autodesk and lots of other things. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So first of all, before we get into talking about uh, political discourse and technology's effect on that and elections and things like that, uh, how did you go from what I understand is working at the CIA to working on things like this? Yeah, uh, I will try to not give the longest life story here ever. But um, yeah, I started out, you know, I come from, I don't come from a technology background um, and still in no way pretend to be a technologist. But I did, you know, I spent most of my career, I was a CIA officer and then a diplomat and really working on sort of national security, foreign policy issues. Um, a lot of my career overseas and working on really just, dire situations in Somalia, Sudan, like totally different realm. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'd say a little bit over three years ago now, I'd left government already. Um, you know, at some point I was working at the White House for Vice President Biden. And then at that point there was just, I, I really wanted to see what the, I would say the world outside of government, the private sector brings to bear on some of the same challenges I'd worked on um, in government. But there was this moment of awakening for me in, I think it was about April 2016. And obviously, we're watching the elections heating up here in the US and just, just hit me in the face, this polarization issue that was happening here. And lots of people have talked about it. But I had this moment and I wrote this piece. And in the piece, um, in time, I was exploring why had it been easier for me to sit down and have an open conversation with a suspected terrorist from Somalia than it was for me to talk to an American on the opposite side of a hot button issue. And it really like smacked me in the face of how did we get here and started realizing that I really believe this polarization, which 
we've always had our disagreements, but it's starting to get to be a point of manufactured polarization through social media and through other media lenses that I started thinking this is actually a bigger threat to us. This is a bigger threat to our democracy. This is a bigger threat to our humanity than lots of the things, including counterterrorism issues I'd been working on. And so I just started completely dedicating myself to what role can I play in helping overcome some of this divisiveness. And it really seemed like the tech industry was was the area where, I mean, I feel like the scale and capability to both like absolutely be detrimental to all of this or hopefully maybe help steer the course in a better direction. It was really in the tech industry that I wanted to to start trying to figure some of this out. Do you think that divisiveness is worse online or do you find it to be close to as bad, if not as bad in, in person? Well, I think it's a bit of a circle now. Mm. I think, um, I mean, this is just from my own experience, not from any empirical evidence, but you know, there was, now I'm going to sound like I'm 900 years old. I remember the days is what I was going to say. But I do remember the days where at the very least, even if we all had very different opinions on solutions or, or directions that we want our country to go or our towns or whatever, we did used to at least start from some basic understanding of a set of facts. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we would go off and debate and dispute and all of that. And I do think that social media in particular, and we can get into a lot of the details of why I think this is, what role I think social media plays in this, but I do think between being able to be anonymous online and spout whatever hate you want, being able, we have an an industry that has actually been built on purposely amplifying some, the most salacious content in order to keep our eyeballs on the screen in order to sell ads. I mean, this is not necessarily new information, but all of that is absolutely exacerbated. The worst part of our inner beasts of, of like waking up this rage and, and, and yeah, I absolutely think it's worse online, but now that's carrying offline. Yeah. I, I, the reason I asked that is because when you say it's easier to, to talk to a warlord <laughs> than someone, uh, you know, in your own community that you disagree with, I feel like that uh, the, my one hope has always been that, well, but if we talk face to face, at least we we have an easier time understanding us. Uh, and on and, and it sounds like you know, that is becoming more difficult because of a disagreement on a set of facts or 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 just anger or even, I think, a chilling effect on wanting to even bring up a political topic to someone because you're just worried, well, they, they may be on the other side and I don't want to have an argument right now. You know, it's interesting. That last point is actually what concerns me the most. But I'll get to that in a second because your last point about the chilling effect mm. is actually very concerning to me. But But yes, I do... I've always believed that the face-to-face, first and foremost, is always going to be more constructive. Um, You know, a lot of what I was exploring before is I I spent so much time and a lot of, I I know it's not politically correct to say hearts and minds, but a lot of the work I was doing, especially in East Africa, a lot of it was some hearts and minds type work. And I would spend time purposely engaging with communities who were nothing like me, some communities who had never really interacted maybe with Americans or certainly not with some 
like weird curly haired Jewish American girl running around <laughs> like it just and and that's why when we talk, talk about warlords, it doesn't mean that at the end of the conversation, we have the same ideas about the future of Somalia or the same ideas about American intervention or whatever the topic was. But we somehow at least came at it from a point of respect of both taking the time to sit down, have that conversation, see the other person as a human being and learn more about where you're coming to the conversation from. And that is becoming, I also in a weird way think that was easier. Sure, it was uh, over 10 years ago, but it was also easier because this was a point in time where I was engaging with people whose entire worldview was not being shaped by social media, Mm -hmm. who had a little bit less access to some of those platforms, right? So it just now, getting to your point about sort of people tuning out in a way we you know the culture of rage has always been a thing here the culture of fear Mm -hmm. sorry not the culture of rage the culture of rage is today (laughs) the culture of fear has always been a thing in the u.s it's always how our politics have worked this is not brand new but the scale of the way social media is able to purposely sort of foster that i actually am concerned not just about the people who now absolutely have zero desire to find common ground and common understanding. But the people who are completely tuned out and say, I don't even want to engage that to me might, that is actually more concerning because if you don't even want to engage, then that means you're just accepting that there is no way we are ever going to overcome some of these issues. And I I find that happening even in myself, where I previously might have said something and I say, you know what, I don't want the fight today. Uh, And maybe I don't post it or maybe I don't say it. Yeah. So governments obviously are paying attention to this and and, uh, uh, proposing legislation or corrective measures. Tech companies are taking a lot of the heat. Uh, Some of them more than others may be proposing their own uh, adaptations to, to try to help this problem. It doesn't seem like anyone agrees that anyone has cracked it. Uh, Who needs to step up to, to alleviate this? Because that is an unsustainable situation that we're describing here. For sure. And, you know, it's funny, your question set me up perfectly for one of the things I am, I just started thinking about this morning. And that is, wow, I now see that there's starting to be friction, even in the the solutions conversation, Mm -hmm. right? The, well, breaking up Facebook won't, won't solve the problem, or just focusing on data privacy won't solve the problem, or focusing on algorithmic transparency, that doesn't, that doesn't fix this problem. And that's true. There is no one solution. It is in, in, in a weird way, I'm wondering if some of the people who are all trying to find solutions are now in a weird way pitting against each other. At the end of the day, there are multiple levels. There is no, nothing's going to happen overnight. I do think government needs to step up. I do think government needs to think through the true I mean, there's the whack-a-mole stuff going on, right? How do we make sure terrorist content isn't online? And how do you make sure that all of the whack-a-mole things, which I understand all matter, but fundamentally we need to figure out how to look at the underlying systemic reasons that all of these things are happening. And that's going to be across the board. Governments need to be able to step back 
understand the situation, be educated on what is the underlying, you know, for example, one of the things that we work on at the Center for Humane Tech and, and, you know, Tristan Harris really is leading the way on this conversation of, you know, how these technologies are purposely addicting us so that they can basically sell ads. Mm -hmm. But what, what is that really doing? And, and it's, it's, for me, the way I look at it is it's about limiting our cognitive capabilities, right? If we are, he uses the term downgrading um, humanity, which human downgrading, which is a great way to look at it, right? It is making sure that we are not able to even think critically, work with each other, figure out solutions to any of these other things. And so what do we need to do about it? Well, government needs to start looking at the underlying systemic issues here. And a lot of that it's not about what content you take down. It's not about how do you impede on free speech. It's about how do we deal with the fact that this is getting amplified to begin with? Mm-hmm. What do we do about recommendation systems and amplification? What do we do about, you know, well, I could go on for an hour and then the show would go on for an hour. But so there's there's a the government. There's There's obviously within companies, I know that there's a lot of movement to try to like get designers to design more humanely, to get employees to question their leadership. I absolutely fundamentally believe a lot of this is a leadership decision and does come from the top. And part of the problem there is if you have corporate board structures that do not incentivize your leaders to consider societal consequences over their own shareholder profit, that's an unsustainable situation as well in terms of fixing any of this. So whether that's shareholders demanding certain change met with governments figuring out how to really um, drill in on the systemic issues here. Uh, But the public also, like, I hate to say that it's an easy thing to say we as individual citizens need to recognize what's being done to us because I'm, I, I don't like the idea that you should push all of the responsibility onto users, but we do as society need to start realizing how we're being manipulated. Yeah. I think a lot of times when people bring up the idea of, of you taking more action, uh, it's often countered as if that is somehow uh, excusing the tech companies from their responsibility. And I, I don't think it's an either or. Uh, And, and I would, I love the idea of, a sort of a, a tech literacy curriculum uh, that all of us could learn to be, say, okay, when you see this happening, that's an algorithm that's trying to get you to do something, and and if you're aware of it, you can you can take action to not fall for it. Essentially, that 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 sort of lesson doesn't seem to be widely proposed as as any part of these solutions that at least that I see. Right. I mean, so part of it is it, there's there's the elephant in the room, and that's that. If really we wanted to reverse this course, we would have to actually look at our entire economic system because the economic, and, and so right. what I'm talking about here is like, how do we, how do we try to figure out all these other solutions without actually completely disrupting our capitalist system? Right. Because without a doubt, unfettered capitalism matched with unfettered innovation is at the core of a lot of this. And so I, I mean, that's a bigger issue that I don't even know how to begin to tackle. And hopefully there are people who are smarter than I am really working on that. But if I can't completely disrupt the economic incentives, 
One of the things I can try to help do is figure out how to make it more expensive to have a business model. And I know I'm, I'm shifting a little bit, but this mm-hmm, is one other mm-hmm. solution. How do we make it more expensive to have a business model that is essentially exploiting our attention, exploiting our cognitive capabilities, and in order to, again, sell us ads? And maybe part of that is also to, to get some of the best economists in the room and hash out how do you quantify the externalities of that? Yeah, right? and, and I know immediately people's minds are going to be like, oh, like a tax on smoking, but it doesn't have to be that blunt, right? Right, because the word tax makes everyone freak mm-hmm. out, which, uh, again, I think is unfortunate. Um, but, you know, I was talking to this woman the other day, and she made this wonderful point. Um, she said, you know, ADD, attention deficit disorder, it's already, you know, it is already categorized as a disorder. Mm-hmm. Well, if we know that, so how do we protect the things that are exacerbating ADD, mm-hmm. which is attention? And and it was just this interesting conversation I was having with her yesterday about that. And, and it makes me think, I don't know if we want to use the word tax, but at the end of the day, there are externalities when your business model is purposely downgrading us instead of helping us be better humans Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market. Perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Stripe Tap to Pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, Visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Or, I mean, Facebook is a great example. If their mission is truly to connect the world, everything else that is happening that is negative is an externality, right? If they're creating more polarization, if they're creating, um, Tristan likes to use this term that I love, uh, algorith- algorithmic hate or algorithmic extremism. Mm-hmm. How do we figure out what that externality is so that they continue? they can continue to connect the world but all these negative outcomes, there has to be a way to make that more expensive for them. I mean, these are just some of the wonky like ways we're thinking about some of this. But 
I, I do the, the one thing, if I can just say on a higher, more esoteric level that I'm really looking at, which is why it's kind of cool that I also have this fellowship going on right now, because I get to just explore these issues that matter to me is the question of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I have found, so government's responsibility is to protect citizens, right? What I haven't found, and not, I'm not saying they're doing a great job of it, by the way, like I'm not, I'm not saying they're succeeding at all levels, but where does the responsibility lie for some of the second and third tier consequences of some of the things that are being built here? And I mean, I'm sitting in San Francisco right now here in the Silicon Valley and who bears responsibility now? A lot of the answers I hear coming out of some of the social media industry, and, and, and when I was at Facebook, some of the answers that we were giving was really pushing the responsibility on the user. Like, we know that X, Y, or Z is illegal in your country. If you let us know what's happening, we'll take it down. That's pushing the responsibility onto somebody else, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yes, I love the idea of digital literacy and of really educating people more on how to, what is happening to them when they use different kinds of technologies. But at the end of the day, I feel like responsibility has been pushed off onto someone else for too long. And we can't just assume that government is responsible for protecting citizens and the rest of us can just do whatever the heck we want. And nobody should care about the consequences of that. And so... Yeah, I think for a long time, these platforms uh, wanted the best of both worlds, right? Uh, They wanted to be a neutral platform when it came to the hard stuff, (laughs) like moderation of content. Um, but they didn't want to be a neutral platform when it came to ad tracking or, or, or things like that. So I, I, when you were talking about externalities, I thought about garbage uh, because that is your own externality. That's the externality that most people can identify with. You have trash that you have to put out and you're not allowed to just throw it out in the street. Uh, you, you have to actually put it in a bag and you are responsible for taking it out to the curb. But at that point, private and Government uh, cooperations in various levels in different cities uh, cooperate to take that trash away. Now, it's not a perfect analogy because what we do with trash and landfills and recycling makes it complicated on that end. So, But it goes with what you're saying is government's job is to protect the people. They don't always do it right. Government's job is to make sure that the trash is is handled responsibly. They don't always do it right, especially here in Los Angeles. But uh, but that that is an externality system that no one protests about, like, why is the government involved in trash, right? Because we all want that to be taken away from us. I love the way you put that together because I think a lot of what's coming out of the social media world right now is trash. It's so, trash, exactly. So I kind of really appreciate that. Um, let's, and again, this is a little bit different than the externality conversation, but Everybody loves to debate whether CDA 230 needs to be amended. And for those who don't know what that is, it's the Communications Decency Act 230. It was written in, I think, 1996. Mm-hmm. Sounds about right. And it, right? And it's, that's what governs this neutrality of, you know, internet platforms to say they're not responsible for what's on their platform. This was written before these platforms even existed. And it goes to the heart of sort of, where the responsibility lies and, and no, do I think that we should completely get rid of 230? No. Do I think that internet platforms that are literally 
exchanging a good for, I mean, I don't know, all sorts of, whether it's a blog or what, whatever it is, I don't think that every internet platform should suddenly not have 230 protection. However, if you are engaging in purposely, if you are curating what I see, if you are amplifying things for your business model to succeed, you cannot possibly tell me you are a neutral platform. You are intentionally curating content and information. You may not be a media company. You may not be a publisher, but you're absolutely not a neutral platform. And so I would love to hear some of the discussion around 230 really focus on maybe there's just ways to work within existing laws, but create a new category. Maybe they're digital curators or maybe they're whatever the category is to accurately portray what is happening. If your company is curating what I see, which then is leading to everything we talked about, right? This rageification, polarization, inability for people to even talk to each other, which then leads to an incredibly ripe situation for someone like a Russia to come in and exploit, which we saw for our elections. You should be responsible for that part of it. And there should be some way to figure out how do we amend some of these laws as opposed to, I know people want a catch-all solution. There's no catch-all solution. Breaking up Facebook, yes, I think there's some very good reasons to do that. It doesn't solve everything. Having really strong data privacy laws, yes, there's incredibly good reasons to do that, but it doesn't solve everything. We have to like think of multiple holistic solutions because our laws are incredibly antiquated right now and we need to catch up. What's well, funny, when we talk about net neutrality on Daily Tech News Show, we talk about the fact that you have a law from the early 1900s uh, and, and then an update to it from the 90s for cable television trying to be applied to the Internet. Uh, I hadn't even thought about the fact that the CDA is old enough now that it is also outdated. It, uh, that, that's very, it's a very good point. Yeah, and there's lots of conversation about it. And, you know, and yeah, and obviously the idea of 230, like I would assume completely terrifies some of these companies and they will use the excuse. Actually, if I could just kind of go off on a tangent for a second, they will use the excuse that, well, that was, that's going to destroy us, right? Like if you get rid of 230 and we are responsible for everything on our platform, that's going to destroy us. What I find fascinating, you have so many brilliant people here in the Silicon Valley who are creating incredible technologies, who really know how to innovate. If you were smart enough to build something like a Facebook or a Google, if you were smart enough to create this incredible system, how are you suddenly not smart enough when it comes to fixing some of these problems? And that's what, A, what kind of boggles my mind. But yeah, if you're not smart enough to fix it, then, then you can't cry when government's going to step in. And this is where fundamentally, I, I have really been trying to figure out what side of this debate I lie on. I more and more do not believe that you can leave it to the people who broke things to also fix it. Well, especially and I go back to that, trying to have it both, both ways. WordPress is a platform that allows people to make their own websites and is a platform. They don't go around, uh, trying to be more than just a platform. Facebook isn't a platform. YouTube isn't even a platform in the same way that WordPress is. But they want to be treated like WordPress when it is convenient for them, it seems like. Right. And that you, you hit the nail on the head there, right? YouTube definitely is not. YouTube's algorithms are 
absolutely taking you down a path they want to take you down in order to keep your eyeballs on their system. And, and we have seen there are studies out there that have shown, unfortunately, and actually I don't think it was the human beings who first created the system who ever were intending for this to happen, but the algorithms are smart enough to learn, ooh, what is it that's going to keep you watching, right? And so there's no way that you can say, I mean, WordPress is the perfect example, but with YouTube, I mean, there's so many examples, right, of the teenage girl who starts looking at YouTube, maybe she's checking out the latest swimsuits for summer, or maybe she's looking at how to lose five pounds before summer. And an hour later, she is watching anorexia videos. Like yeah. the, the, and, and so, yeah, there's no way you could tell me that's a neutral platform. Maybe it's not a human being sitting there purposely taking you down that path, but your algorithms are. And this is, again, where I get to when you really ask, and this is, I'm not a technologist, so you, anyone listening, if I'm not using the 100% accurate engineering terms for what I'm about to say, yeah, that's because I, I'm not a technologist. But when, when people who work at YouTube or Google or Facebook say, well, we don't fully know why the algorithm is taking you down that path, yes, you do. Because in order to keep us on your screen so that you can sell ads, you have to keep us engaged. And each thing is going to be a little more extreme than the thing you watched before. Otherwise, why would you keep watching it? Yeah. They may not know why the algorithm's doing the thing they want it to do, but it is doing the thing they want to do, right? Right. And yeah. so, I mean, one of my things is if you don't know why it's happening, shut it off. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Shut it off Interesting. and take your brilliant mind into figuring out how to build a system where your video, where your product will recommend the next thing in a more healthy way. Like it, if you don't know why this is happening, then turn your recommendation system off and rebuild it. I, I just, to me, the idea of we're trying our best, but we're trying, as you said, have it both ways. We want to be neutral. We want to not be on the wrong side of 230, but we don't really know why the algorithms are doing this. We can't really control it. It's all this sort of swirl that I, it, it boggles my mind that you have the best minds here, the best technical minds here in Silicon Valley. But whenever it comes to something like this, it's suddenly that's just too hard. Well, Yael, I could talk for hours with you about this. It's really fascinating stuff. Uh, thank you for taking the time uh, to chat with us today. Thank you. If people want to find out more about your work or, or, or anything else, where should they go? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I have a personal website, which I kind of update, which is yeahalizeandsat.com. But really, I, you know, I'm really working a lot with the Center for Humane Technology right now. You should definitely follow them. I think some of the things that Tristan Harris and his whole team there are doing are incredible. They're at the center of this conversation. Um, so either place is great. And thanks to everybody who supports this show at patreon.com slash DTNS. That is why we're able uh, to take the time to have these extra conversations and explore these issues with smart people like Yael. So keep supporting us there and uh, find the podcast at dailytechnewsshow.com. I'll talk to you next time. This show is part of the Frog Pants Network. Get more at frogpants.com. You have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. 
If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.